back at the end of the summer, I was introduced to ALICE. ALICE isn't a person in this case. ALICE is an acronym and it stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained and Employed. What that means is ALICE are the people around us who we call essential workers, who we call teacher, who we call nurse, who we call librarian, who we call many, many titles. These are hardworking people, in most cases working full time, that will have problems running their households from a financial standpoint. And it's not just about wages, it's about earning a living wage. So this report was put together by the United Way and we invited on to give us some insight into Alice, who makes up Alice and what can we do to close some of the gaps because people who are working hard and uh, working essential jobs and what we call essential workers should be able to manage their households from a financial standpoint. So we invited the president and CEO of the United Way of the Capital Area there in Mississippi, Dr. Ira Murray, to give us some insight. Uh, he's with the United Way. And he will give us some insights into what the data is telling us about Alice from a national perspective and what are some policies or things that we can do about it. So we thank you again for joining us. Stay tuned as we have Dr. Ira Murray on the Parlay in All Blue. Thanks. Murray, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. Thank you for having me today. Hey, thank you for joining us. And just for you and I have talked about some of this off camera, but I want to just bring the audience into sort of at least how I got here is back in August when I became aware of, of, of something called Alice and the Alice Report. I was just kind of blown away by it. And I'll let you help clear it up because it's a report done by the United Way. You are a United Way executive, the president and CEO of the United Way of the Capital Area there in Mississippi. Tell us what Alice is, because in this case, Alice is not a person. It's a group of people. But I'll, I'll sort of stop there. Just, you know, what is Alice? Well, we all know Alice, right? So ALICE is an acronym. Um, it's an acronym for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed, A-L-I-C-E. And ALICE is the person you pass by every day. You may or may not think about who that person is. It's sometimes it's the cashier at your store. Sometimes it's the barista who gets your cup of coffee. Uh, sometimes it's the public health worker in the hospital or in a doctor's office, or it's the uh, public uh, maintenance worker you know, fixing pipes or damaged roads. You know, Alice really are folks we we work, we depend on all the time. Over the last year, we've talked a lot about essential workers. And many of these essential workers are Alice. And Alice households are those households who live above the federal poverty level, but still struggle to make ends meet every single month. So asset limited, income constrained, employed, Alice. Are we talking about the working poor here? So it's a much different way of talking about the working poor. Generally, I think when we think about the working poor, we think about them in terms of just wages, right? So do you make 
you know, $15 an hour versus $12 an hour versus $9 an hour versus minimum wage, right? When we talk about Alice, we really expand that conversation because we're not talking about so much wages, even though it's a big part of it. We're talking about your ability to actually afford to maintain a household in the community in which you live. And so Alice is much different than, say, the federal poverty level, right? Talking about people who live in poverty because that's a very uh, specific income level. It's very different than talking about the working poor because we're talking about, you know, the idea of how much you earn. But in Alice, you know, Alice in one community could look very different from Alice in another community. The amount of money, the amount of income really is going to vary depending on where you live and the size of your household. And it's really all specific to your county, your community, what the cost of living is. And it really boils it down to just those essential items. So when we think about Alice, we, we have what we call the household survival budget. And in that budget, we're looking at things like housing, child care, health care, transportation, uh, food, a smartphone plan. Uh, because in, in 2021, a smartphone is really very essential. Many people use it as their computer, right? Taxes, things like that, right? So we're talking about the bare bones of being able to maintain a household. We're not talking about having an emergency fund. We're not talking about savings or college funds. We're talking strictly about month to month, can I pay the bills that, that are required to maintain a household? And that's what we're really focusing on with Dallas. Got it. Okay. Well, well, thank you for that. And I, I will come back to that and, and ask uh, ask more about it because and you you started with this. In the pandemic, we sent out a lot of thank yous to essential workers and welcome to our heroes or what have you. But I always thought that, I, I'm, you know, for someone who's called an essential worker, I don't know if we're treating them that way or if we understand, you know, what essential actually actually means. And you mentioned some of the 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 roles there. So the, the, one more question, though. So it's not wages. Are Alice people t- typically working more than, let's say, 32 hours or 40 hours or are these these part time people working or is it full time? Yeah. So Alice uh, typically is going to be a full time worker. And depending on the the household composition, it could be multiple full-time workers. It could be people with multiple jobs, right? So at least 40 hours a week. But in some cases, you know, if you've got two people in the household, it could be 80 hours a week. You know, it could be 100 hours a week, you know, just kind of depending on what it is. And it also depends on, you know, how many people in the household, right? So Alice looks very different for a single person versus a married couple, um, and particularly a married couple with children versus a senior, right? So it could look very different depending on the household composition. Got it. Now, what what made the United Way want to look at this lens and and how broadly does the United Way look at it? Uh, So Alice started about a decade or so ago with uh, United Way of Northern New Jersey in Morristown, New Jersey. And it really started as a really a small project. They were looking at one community. Uh, They wanted to do a study of financial struggle in that particular community. And it really just because of the nature of the of the study, it really just opened so many eyes that it just snowballed from there. It started with one county, then it became a study of the entire state of New Jersey. And then you know, like most things in the United Way network, uh, when we see something going really well at one United Way, we pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, can you teach me how to do that? Or, hey, can I pay you to do that for us? And it really just started to snowball. So now it's from you know one county about a decade or so ago. Now there are 23 states who are actively involved and having Alice studies of their own every one to two years. 
Got it. So let's dig into what is, when was the last Alice report produced? Uh, so for Mississippi, we've had our first report, uh, which is our only report to date, uh, which was released in August of this year. Okay. That was, okay. So that's, that's where I saw it in, in terms of that. A lot, anybody who's been listening to the show for a while knows that I have uh, a lot of connections to Mississippi, even though I'm here in Georgia and I'm originally a Chicago and Mississippi is often the lens of how I approach things. But, you know, I tell people that, you know, it's really easy to pick on Mississippi or my ancestral home of Alabama. I'm all over the place, right? But really, if you leave the big cities, and even in big cities, if you leave the affluent areas, the country can be Mississippi in terms of access to quality of food, food deserts, and, you know, transportation, rural hospitals, and a whole lot of other things. So I always think that Mississippi is a good starting point to get a view of where the country is on on certain things. What is sort of the, if there's, I know that the report is 23 states, but sort of what is the national story, or at least the story of those 23 states in, in, in aggregate? Yeah. So naturally, we see about 42 percent of all households in the U.S. Uh, fall below what we would call the Alice threshold. Right. Forty two percent. So more than four out of every 10 households. Wow. Struggle to pay the bills. I mean, struggle to meet the minimum basic needs of maintaining a household every month. And some states are higher than others. So in Mississippi, we have the highest rate but below Alice Threshold families, along with Louisiana, half of the households in the state of Mississippi are below the Alice Threshold, which is by far the highest uh, in the country. Now, we don't have the highest poverty rate, interestingly enough. Uh, so in Mississippi, we've got a very high poverty rate. I don't want to minimize it. Right. Our poverty rate is about 20 percent. But the number of Alice households, which are those households that are specifically above the federal poverty level, but still below the Alice Threshold, are about 30 percent. So you're talking about more than the poverty rate in Mississippi. And so we've seen it across the country. We've seen, you know, pockets across the country. You see a really large concentration in the South, states with higher numbers of families who are below the Alice threshold. But you see it really in every region. I mean, it's not something that's relative only to certain parts of the country. It's just a little bit more concentrated in the South. And large states, small states, you know, you see it in a lot of different places where Alice families live and where they where they typically are. Some of it has to do with affordability. So in states like New York, for instance, um, you're going to see a large number of Alice families because, you know, certain parts of New York are just really expensive to live. But, you know, in a state like Mississippi, which has the lowest median household income, you also see a large concentration of Alice families. Yeah. And doing some background on this with the information or just some information that you provided to me, I did some some digging just to share California is 45% of family of households falling below the Alice threshold. And so when you say 45% and California is a pretty big state, I don't know what the population, I don't have that in front of me. That's a big state. That's a large group of people. New York state, 45%. I noticed Pennsylvania, 39% as a state, which is still 40%. I mean, anytime you're talking about in my mind, when you get over 10% of something, you're actually talking about a large population. But Philadelphia County, where the city of Philadelphia is, is 
51%. So again, back to that county is Alice numbers are very close to Mississippi's as a, as a state. So I thought that that's, and I, I just want people to understand that this is not something that while it may have concentration in the South, it has implications for every for everywhere. But but let me ask you, I mean, this is something that the United Way does. Why should anyone, if I'm not in a state where there's a large Alice percentage or I'm in a uh, county or zip code where that's not an issue, why, why should I care about this? Well, number one, I mean, if you're not Alice, you probably know someone who is. Yeah, uh, and a lot of us grew up Alice and didn't know it. Right, there was no name. For it. Yeah, right. uh, some of us do it, didn't even realize it. You know, because our parents, right. you know, didn't miss a beat. Right. Yeah, we right, didn't know. Right, yeah. right. We didn't right. know what kind of conversations were going on at night. You know, around the kitchen right. table after we were asleep. But you know, we never missed a beat. But it, the main thing really is when we think about Alice. You know, the main thing is the E in Alice stands for employed. Right. So these are folks who are are. Taxpayers. These are folks who have jobs that are very essential to the way that we run society. These are folks who our kids go to school with, who really perform a lot of the functions that allow us to thrive as a society, right? And so, if these families, if these households are struggling, that really impacts every other aspect of society, right? So, the ability, for instance, to go see a doctor if you can't afford to do it, that has a direct impact on public health, right? The ability to put your children in in quality childcare. That has a direct impact on education, not just for that child, but other children in that child's classroom. It's really key that we make sure that, you know, these folks are able to to be able to focus on having sustainable households because that creates sustainable communities. One of the interesting things about the Alice report, and I'll dig into Mississippi a little bit, is, you know, we we actually divide we actually divide occupations in categories, right? And so we have two really main categories of occupations. Uh, We call them uh, maintainers, uh, which are folks who work in uh, infrastructure jobs uh, and nurturer jobs. So like educators, uh, home health professionals, healthcare workers, people like that. And then we have another category that we call innovators, right? These are the adapters, the inventors, right? The creators, right? Okay. And in Mississippi, we have an enormous concentration of, and and this is probably going to be the same in most states, enormous concentration of people who have jobs that are in that maintainer category. And those tend to be jobs where there are many fewer opportunities to have high paying jobs. So in Mississippi, about 68% of all the jobs in Mississippi pay less than $20 an hour. And of those, about 80% pay less than $15 an hour. Now, in our Alice study, one of the things we found was if you're a single person, um, just to maintain a household, you need to make at least about 11 to $12 an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, most jobs in Mississippi don't pay $12 an hour. Um, if you're a married couple and you have two children, you know, one who's preschool age and one who's an infant toddler age, uh, for instance, you need to make a combined about $30 an hour. Well, again, there are very few jobs in Mississippi that pay even 15 an hour. And so even if we're talking about and these jobs cut across, right, cut across sectors. So you could be talking about the teacher at your child's school. Yeah. Right. So why should we care? Right. So if you're if the teacher of your child's school is coming to coming to work and they have to worry about paying the bills, they have to worry about going to see the doctor, they have to worry about the child being in child care. They have to worry about, you know, not having an emergency bill that they can't pay. It's going to be really hard for them to focus on educating your child. Yep. Um, Yep. If you if you have a shortage of. Child care workers, for instance, 
that has a direct impact not only on education, but also on how the economy is going to grow and how the economy is going to evolve over time, because people base a lot of their decisions in terms of how they invest economically in a community on kindergarten readiness, on third grade reading. Like those are really, really key points across the line. And if you're struggling in those areas because your child's teacher is struggling financially and and really has to worry about maintaining the household, it has direct impacts on your present and your future. So, you know, we can't really think about working poor as people who just don't have good jobs, right? A lot of times these are people who have jobs that we might think of as being good jobs, but until you realize what the cost of living is and how that impacts a family, it's really hard to pinpoint who those families are. I'll say one other thing, you know, in the report, we, we make a distinction between, we study inflation in the report, right? So that's one aspect of the report that's really crucial. And when we study it, we make a distinction between uh, the consumer price index and what we call the Alice Essentials Index. And we do that for a very specific reason. When you look at CPI, it has a number of factors that are involved in how they calculate CPI, which is that kind of broader the rate of inflation. We say inflation is going up, you know, one and a half percent. That's really what we're talking about. And CPI um, is consumer price index? Consumer price index, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one, you know, is, is really focused largely in urban areas when they do that study. And then they, they throw in things like all kinds of consumer goods, cost of a new car, you know, things like that, right? When we have the Alice Essentials Index, we actually basically boil down the CPI into those uh, categories that are included in the Alice Household Survival Budget, right? So again, housing, transportation, childcare, healthcare, education, food, taxes, smartphone. And we found that the rate of inflation for those specific items grew at twice the rate of the consumer price index. So when we start thinking about inflation, and I know it's been on everybody's mind recently because of the cost of food and milk and things like that. Right. It really goes farther beyond that because the actual cost of maintaining a household for these families is actually going up at twice the rate of inflation for, for consumer goods writ large. Is that due to the pandemic or was this happening? I'm talking about the inflation now. Was this due to the pandemic or was it before the pandemic? This is before the pandemic. So in our study, our, the data from our study is from 2007 to 2019. OK, so for our state specific data, we don't even have COVID included in it. So we were already in a bad situation before COVID. Hit. And it'll be 2023 when we have state level data that includes the impact of COVID. And we're really bracing for some very eye opening numbers. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I, I think that really brought it home in terms of when you're talking about, especially in the in that realm of education, and we're actually talking about teachers and, and not simply just the, the just the paraprofessionals, but it's really probably wraps into everybody who's involved in the educational process, the, the custodians, bus drivers, and probably a lot of people there. I would imagine that there's some implication of Alice in in healthcare, right? So if we take away the physicians, when you go into a hospital, there's a lot of people that are involved in that process. Are are there roles or jobs in the in in the area of healthcare that typically, or you may see a more con- higher concentration of Alice households? Yeah. So in Mississippi, especially, you're going to see that. I mean, we've got a nursing shortage right now in Mississippi, and largely. Yeah based on wages, because nurses can go across the border to any of you know surrounding states and make a, a lot more money than they make in Mississippi. But to your point, I mean, when you go into a hospital, you're not dealing with just the doctors, right? You're, you're looking at registered nurses. You're looking at certified nursing assistants. You're looking at 
custodians. You're looking at people who prepare the food. You're looking at the secretaries and the administrators assistants. There's a whole ecosystem and infrastructure of a hospital that's built largely on the people who make the least amount of money, to be quite frankly about it, frank about it. Um, and they're usually the people at the front line. Um, so if you think about if you've ever been in a hospital, you know, typically it's not the doctor giving you the shot. It's not the doctor taking the temperatures. <laughs> you know, the first person you see typically is not the doctor, right? It's usually going to be a nurse. Yeah. And in some cases, it could be an RN. In some cases, depending on what level of service you're looking for, it could be a CNA. And so, you know, we and those are the people who really populate the hospital. And so, yeah, we see that a lot. And I think that's really, let me back up. I, we, not only do we see it a lot, I think that's a large part of, the hospital shortage that we're seeing across the state of Mississippi as well. Uh, you know, we've had rural hospitals close and it's been really hard to, to replace folk. Part of the reason is, you know, even if you're a nurse or a CNA at a rural hospital and it closes, you know, if you don't have reliable transportation, then you can't go to the hospital two or three counties over to work. Right. So not only you know do you lose your hospital, but you actually then lose your opportunity to work in that area because you can't get back and forth. So it's not even just a talent situation is also an access. And we talk about that in the Alice report about um, access to reliable transportation being a key to helping Alice families. Yeah. You said Mississippi has the nursing shortage. Georgia has it significantly, too. And, you know, for another podcast uh, episode, I think what we're seeing in that nursing shortage and the great resignation is, is that as a country, we are missing some clues about, you know, the value of work and what people are people able to sustain themselves. And and in the midst of a pandemic, we have, you know, some critical resources, the nurses going out to the highest bidder. Right. Essentially, you got people getting on planes, going to, you know, wherever they can make that make make the most money. And God bless them as an individual standpoint. But a lot of times they are leaving some places where we have the greatest need, where like the COVID numbers are going up, you know, they're going to places that can can pay more. But you mentioned rural hospitals and the closings. Does Alice look different in rural areas versus in urban areas? You know, that is a, a great question, Mark. You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, in Pennsylvania, right? Having such a high rate of Alice, really, you know, higher than the state average. In Mississippi, what we found is it does look very different depending on where you are. And it can look very different within counties as well, right? Not just between counties. So Mississippi has one urban area, which is the Jackson, Metro Jackson area. Two of the counties in the Metro Jackson area have two of the lowest, have the two lowest rates of households below the Alice threshold. Those are the two counties that are right outside of Jackson. So in the urban area in Mississippi, you actually see a below average rate of families uh, who fall below the uh, the Alice threshold. And so by below average, you mean below below the 50 percent? Correct. But you're correct. They're, they're amongst that. The people amongst that 50 percent. Got it. But you really see the largest concentration of Alice households along the Mississippi River counties. And I think in our earlier podcast, you, you kind of touched on, you know, on all the concentrated poverty really around yeah. those counties, but it's not even just the poverty rate. It's also when you expand it to look at Alice thresholds, you know, if you've got the counties all the way from the Mississippi Delta going all the way to the southwestern border of the state, all but two of those counties have extremely high concentrations of, of families who fall below the Alice threshold. And they're all rural counties, what we would consider to be rural counties. 
Yeah, you know, I'm going to to take a look and I urge, you know, people, you know, after this episode to just just do some research on your own and and look for things. But, you know, what I find and some of this is backed up through research in in an episode earlier with Aaron Shirley Ori, I mentioned a book called Deep Roots, and it talks about that the legacy of slavery can almost predict, you know, patterns in terms of who's going to be the fastest to adopt integrated schools, who's going to embrace sort of universal health care or any sort of progressive kind of things. I would venture to say that the red line, right, which redlining in terms of housing will probably yield a lot of the same results. So I'm from originally from Chicago which is a heavily segregated city. It's in the North, but I mean, people have no, it's it's extremely segregated. As is Boston, as is Philadelphia. I would imagine that you would see a lot of the same data in terms of what you see along the Mississippi River in some of those areas where there was heavy, um, heavy, heavy redlining. You said that this is, this does not include COVID in terms of from a data standpoint, but and listen, I, I know that someone in your 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 role is, you know, you're data driven and what have you. And you want to go with the facts. But sort of what do you anticipate coming out about it? And, and is there a report being prepared that will bring COVID into into the factor? Uh, yeah. So we actually are. So if you go on the uh, United for website, we actually do have a COVID report. Okay. It doesn't give a state level data, but it does give you a glimpse of kind of what we've seen, you know, so we know uh, because so many Alice workers are in what we would essentially call essential jobs now, right? Those food service, those public service, healthcare, education, things like that, that we know that they were impacted. And so we actually have some survey data um, that shows that Alice households were, you know, about four times more likely than non-Alice households to report being having to struggle financially during, during the pandemic higher instances of interruption in income, interruption in employment, you know, because these are jobs that, you know, essentially people didn't have many options. Right. If you're an hourly worker and they cut your hours, you know, where do you go for extra income, right? Versus if you're a salary worker, you know, you know, those things don't necessarily impact you the same way. If you have the ability to work from home to do your job, then COVID doesn't impact you the same way that someone who has to physically be at work, like a cashier, like a, you know, like a, a custodian, like an office manager, you know, like a childcare worker, you know, it doesn't affect you the same way it affects them. And so, you know, we know based on some survey data that folks are really experiencing COVID very differently depending on the type of job that they have. And typically the, the Alice worker um, who works in those maintainer type of jobs um, had much more impact with COVID. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, uh, I, you know, I definitely don't want to make this a, a, a vaccine episode or anything like that, but, you know, rightfully so is a big push to like, how can we get the schools open and get people, get kids back in school? And, you know, a big part of it is the masking the social distancing and, and vaccinations and all of, I think all of that's good, but I always hear missing that we're not really thinking about the, human infrastructure around the students, you know, which includes the teachers and the, the custodians and the paraprofessionals and what have you, just from a, an income and child care and, you know, what access do they have to transportation, getting back and forth or what have you. So I, I just think that's a big missed opportunity. But I will ask, 
because the United Way just didn't put this together to to look at the data, what sort of policy or program programmatic opportunities do we have? What what should we be doing as a country to help combat this? Yeah, I mean that's the key, right? I mean we do all this research not just to share the information, which is important, but to also figure out where the gaps are and how we can fill those gaps. So in the report, we identify several different factors that um, widen the gap between families that are below the Alice threshold and families that are financially stable and also factors that could close the gap, right? And so when we think about factors that widen the gap, we think of, we, you know, we really look at things like the high price of education um, and student loan debt. We think about uh, childcare deserts that might exist. We think about taxation, right? And how you know, tax systems are structured, you know, do they and who they benefit, right? Um, predatory lending is a really, really big issue, uh, particularly in the state of Mississippi where predatory lending is pretty rampant. We have to do a lot in that area. And also, you know, the increase of hazards for workers, particularly those who work hourly, have fewer benefits, work multiple jobs. You know, we looked at all those things. And, and so we know that those are issues and factors that widen the gap. We also know that in terms of closing the gap, there are certain things we have to focus on in terms of both policy and what we uh, what we are able to invest our resources in. One of those things is, again, reliable transportation, um, making sure that people have access to resources, make sure they have access to opportunities reliably uh, so that they can take advantage of what opportunities do exist. Uh, we think about wages. Um, I know this isn't a conversation strictly about wages, but wages are, are crucial because we know when we think about wages, you know, how much it actually costs to maintain a household, how that can inform what employers are able to offer. We think about efficient financial tools because, you know, for those who are unbanked or underbanked in Jackson, we got about 35 percent of our population are either unbanked or underbanked. We know they're going somewhere with their money. Uh, Somebody's, you know, they're going to someone for a loan. They're going to someone to fill that financial gap um, during the course of, of a month. And so, we want to make sure they have access to the bank and, and not going to predatory lenders. Um, healthcare again is a huge issue uh, with the not only the hospital shortage but the worker shortage. Childcare is, is is extremely important. We saw um, Alice families really impacted by access to childcare. Many of them couldn't go back to work because they didn't have childcare, uh, and many of them just could not afford childcare based on reduced salaries, reduced hours, and wages. And then lastly, housing, because where you live, to your point earlier, is so crucial and really dictates so much in terms of the opportunities, in terms of your access to education, the access to food that's high quality and affordable, access to jobs. You know, so those are really the factors that we're looking at from a, a policy and a program perspective that could help us start to close that gap between the households that are able to uh, be financially stable every month and those who aren't. So when you said healthcare, something that came to mind, I, I, you know, um, and there's a heavy concentration, you said, of, of Alice households or, or households not meeting the threshold in the South. Could a lot be done by simply expanding Medicaid? I mean, it, just Medicaid that's available under the Affordable Care Act. I mean, just because medical debt. I know it's a huge issue in many Southern states and, and, and just in general. I mean, is that something that could help? Medicaid expansion would be huge. You know, Medicaid expansion would benefit the state of Mississippi to the tune of about $20 billion. And that $20 billion would go into one, uh, making sure that, you know, we expand the number of people who have access to, to health care through health insurance, through the Medicaid program, but also, you know, bringing back rural hospitals, 
Um, a lot of that money would go to reestablish rural hospitals. Um, some of that money could go to paying higher wages so that we can attract more nurses back to the state of Mississippi. There's a lot that can be done. And then, of course, these are all jobs and they have an economic impact, but they have a real impact on people. There was a story in Mississippi a couple of months ago about a family who, you know, the mother who was about eight months pregnant died uh, and the child died because they couldn't get to a hospital uh, wow. within an hour wow. from their home. Within an hour? Within an hour. Wow. You know, there are parts of Mississippi where, you know, a hospital, the nearest hospital is, is more than an hour away. And if you've got a medical emergency, you know, and there are no places who have the ability to get you there. I mean, the the, hus- the tragedy, the real you know, part of the tragedy was that the husband, because they couldn't get an ambulance there soon enough, the husband actually had to drive because that was a lot quicker than waiting on an ambulance. And the mother and the child died on the way to the hospital. Right. And so having Medicaid expansion would um, create more opportunities for health care, more opportunities yeah. for jobs. And that really, we know that disproportionately impacts Alice families, not just in Mississippi, but across the country. Yeah, you you said that. I will tell you again, in, in urban environments, and I can think about, you know, neighborhoods in Chicago where there are legacy hospitals that are understaffed and just have a notorious sort of reputation of, you know, if you if something's wrong with you, don't go to this hospital. I don't want to name the exact hospitals because I don't want to, you know, disparage it even more. But it's like we're really comfortable with having these huge gaps in the healthcare infrastructure. And, I, and we've got to got to correct that. One one other place I wanted to ask. And, and so when you were saying transportation is a big deal, we know we just had the infrastructure Infrastructure bill passed, and I would imagine some of that will go to, you know, roads and what have you. But in transportation, are you just talking about are you talking about roads and bridges and that kind of thing? Or are you also including public transportation being helpful? Oh, public transportation would be big. Uh, I mean, we're basically talking about, you know, cars, people's ability to, you know, get from point A to point B. Right? Yeah. yeah. Walkability. In some cases, right? You know, there are many communities that you just can't walk. Yeah. And we know in Mississippi, if, if anyone's ever driven through Mississippi, uh, you know, there are parts of Mississippi that will tear your car up. In <laughs> Atlanta. Just, hey, <laughs> listen, we have a new mayor in Atlanta. If you're listening, I, hey, I don't want my car to just fall in some of these big potholes either. But keep going. <laughs> Look, there's a there's a pothole fund. I mean, you know, it's, in the city of Jackson, you know, if you, if you ride over a pothole and and bust the tire out, you know, you can send them the bill to pay for it. I mean, it's that, it's that bad, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So we're talking about the ability to get point A, point B. But public transportation in places like Mississippi, you know, really is, isn't very good at all. Uh, and then particularly in those rural areas, again, you know, you have to have a car. Yeah. And if you don't, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to take advantage of, of opportunities. Yep. I want to switch gears a little bit in terms of um, all of this is really heavy heavy work. I mean, to be honest with you, and I think everybody who's involved in this space as, as you are, you know, what was your journey to even get here? What, what led you to want to, to work in sort of this space in this area? How did you get here? That's a great question because this is not the place I I anticipated (laughs) I would end up by any means. Um, So, you know, I'm originally from South Carolina. I, um, you know, went to undergraduate school at Florida A&M University, the number one public HBCU uh, in the country, uh, by the way. And, you know, I went to FAMU for business because I, I thought I was going to be a business person. You know, it's something that, you know, 
my family really was really big on, on education and entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, that's something I wanted to really get involved in. So, you know, I was a business major for uh, my whole time there, about two years, two and a half years in. Um, I really felt like corporate wasn't really what I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, get involved in communities. I wanted to do work that, you know, had a purpose, was very meaningful, and then where I could have a huge impact on communities. So I actually went to my advisor and I told him that. And he, and he said, well, I'll tell you what, you know, don't switch your major. Stay in business. Learn how to run things, you know, because at the end of the day, a business degree really is teaching you how to run things, yeah. um, how to run an organization. And then go get your master's degree in something that's focused on the work that you actually want to do in communities. So I got my business degree and then I found a master's program at Vanderbilt University that was really focused on uh, community development. Right. So it was an opportunity to, one, learn more about community psychology, how communities relate to one another, how they organize, how you know they form culture, um, how you can support one another and then how organizations um, can really play a key part of working hand in hand with community, right? Everything from service delivery to research and everything else, right? So um, I got my master's degree in community development from Vanderbilt University. I actually started off in United Way as a national fellow, uh, and my placement was actually here, right here in Jackson. Um, I think I was the only fellow that was. There were ten of us, and I think I was the only one that was willing to come to Mississippi. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. And uh, and so you know, I came here on a one year fellowship, thinking that. You know, I'd do this for a year, see how I liked it, then maybe probably go to another, you know, big city. I was coming from Nashville, so, you know, either go back to Nashville or go to another big city somewhere um, right. and do that work. And then, lo and behold, a month after I started, I started in July of um, 2005, Hurricane Katrina hits. And it just really just turned my world upside down to see, you know, how all the needs in a community can really arise during a time of disaster. And then also how community can really come together uh, to support one another during times of disaster. So, you know, I, I spearheaded our Hurricane Katrina disaster assistance work that we did for about nine months. And it really made me more committed to doing this work uh, because, it. you know, this is where the rubber meets the road. So I've really been doing this work for most of my life ever since. I did for a brief period live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I got my doctorate degree in education. Okay. Focused on ur- urban education because I knew there was a lot. I knew every every social problem we encountered down here in Mississippi, uh, you know, typically went back to education. You know, those who were more educated, those who had the right opportunities, those who had supportive families and supportive communities and, and teachers and schools were able to to make good lives for themselves and those who didn't weren't. And there were too many people who weren't. So I wanted a much better understanding of the educational landscape. So I got my doctorate degree in, in urban education. Figured I'd go teach at a university somewhere. And then lo and behold, this opportunity came back up for me to, to come back to Mississippi and lead this organization. And it just felt like the right thing to do. So I've been back here for about three and a half years and uh, have not regretted it one time. Yeah. Yeah. So so we're going to come back to that, that fam, you being the number one public HBCU. We're going to get back to that. But, you know, I will I will tell you the. um Nicole Hannah Jones has just gone through, and there's a the the book version, the 1619 project. But I always tell people the way I look at the way I view her work is is that the 1619 project is like thriller, but her work on education and ongoing segregation is particularly the importance of it that she did with ProPublica and other things is 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 off the wall. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's the, that's to me where, you know, the most soul and kind of the the heart of it, of her work is. And I think it's something that we still 
seem to really miss is, is, is or we're still missing the how important education is is in in, in building the society. I, and I, I mean, it's so basic with everything that you just talked about with with Alice and, you know, and, and all of those things, how important education is, is. I can't believe we still miss that as a as a country. But the other area that I wanted to dig on where, when you're talking there is, is that going into business and your journey and, and business and then and then education, the Urban League here in Atlanta, Urban League Greater Atlanta, our CEO here, she is someone whose background ahead of time was uh, uh, in business and in accounting and what have you. And I, I really tell people, you know, all leadership roles, we need really solid people. So her her business background really makes her an effective executive for um, what's happening in the um, in the Urban League here. So anyway, so I appreciate all of that. And as as we wind down and what, what part of South Carolina are you from? Oh, Columbia, Columbia, Columbia. Sure. OK. All right. OK. Columbia. So as we wind down, and I really appreciate everything there. Are, what is um, outside of Alice? What are other things that are going on in in Jackson there with the United Way? Yeah, so our United Way, you know, we serve three counties. We serve Hines, Madison, and Rankin counties, which are all around the city of Jackson. And you know, the biggest issues that we see uh, that we're tackling are early childhood education because we see uh, so many kids who are just coming to school unprepared. And all the research, all the data tells you that you know, when kids show up to school in kindergarten, not ready, it's, it's almost impossible to get caught up. Yeah. You know, we have some really good uh, elementary schools here in, in the city and around the city, but making sure that kids are able to take full advantage of the opportunities in those schools has been really crucial. And so we focus a lot of our work on working with families, on working with uh, child care centers, uh, working with school districts and universities to provide the most um, and the best opportunities we can for, for those students, for those young children who are going to be going into, into public school, particularly focusing on three and four-year-olds, but also, you know, starting at birth, because we know all of this starts um, from the time that child is in the womb um, to the care that the mother is able to get. We have really tough, we have really tough environment for prenatal care across the state of Mississippi, and that has a really direct impact on child development. And it's going all the way up through, through third grade, you know, because we want to make sure that kids not only have a strong start, but, you know, are developing the literacy skills that they're going to have to carry with them for the rest of their lives. And third grade really is that pivotal year um, that we have to make sure that kids are, are on track or beyond uh, on track by that time. So you know, early childhood development is really big for us. Um, economic mobility is really big for us as well. So, you know, working directly with schools, working directly with young people, uh, working directly with, with employers, uh, universities, municipalities uh, to create opportunities for folks to take advantage of you know, some of the jobs that are that are coming about, some of the careers that do pay uh, a wage that can help you sustain a family, sustain a household and get you out of being in Alice and into financial stability, um, making sure that people get banked as a start. Right. Making sure that people have access to financial tools that allow them to build capital, that allow them to to invest in their families and their futures yeah. in a way that makes them, you know, financially literate and money smart. But going beyond that, also make sure that we've got an environment that respects work that uh, respects dignity that people do bring and, you know, that really understands uh, what people need in terms of, you know, what they need to maintain a household and try to make sure that you know, employers are pretty responsive to that. So that's what we focus a lot of our work, a lot of our efforts 
And then also connecting people with community resources and community services. That's just a core function of what not always do across the U.S. And that's something that we focus a lot on. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, one of the uh, and this will be a brief diversion and, and you know, we're to wrap up here shortly. But I did want to ask, uh, you know, I have um, written and talked about, you know, diversity a lot in what have you. And a lot of times in the you'll hear a lot of support for diversity, verbal support or written support for diversity from non for profit or higher ed. And you'll see several stories in the media. But I often wonder what's actually happening even within those organizations. What is diversity like in the not-for-profit space? You know, I'll, I'll speak for United Way's network because that's, that's where I'm most familiar. Uh, it's, still a, it's still a challenge, to be quite honest with you. I know that, you know, we you typically in our space see a slight overrepresentation of, say, African-Americans in this work. But when you start to break it down by position, um, you start seeing some real, some real stark uh, characteristics, right? So, you know, black workers in this area seem to be overrepresented in, in service delivery, in program delivery, yes. uh, but we're underrepresented in CEO roles, in um, accounting roles, right? Yeah. In fundraising roles. Really. Yeah, yeah. And so it really speaks to the way that oftentimes we're seen in this space. We're seen as people who typically are um, connected with the communities, right? You hear, you hear terms like that, right? You know the community, right? Um, you're from the community, right? These are your people, right? right you know, right. we we often hear that kind of thing, and it, and it, but it serves to really just and we don't mind doing this work because you know it, it speaks to us, right? Sure. But we often see ourselves almost pigeonholed into these certain roles that people can view us in, right? And it's hard for people sometimes for boards in particular, sometimes to view us as leaders, to view us as money managers, to view us as fundraisers. And so we still got a lot of work to do in that regard. We still have a lot of work to do in terms of, you know, how we view our communities uh, and who we're asking for money, who we're raising money from, you know, who we're, we're responsive to when we're setting our strategic goals, when we're, you know, talking about the work that we do, right? Typically, you know, we, we do a lot of our fundraising in middle-class households, which are still the bread and butter of philanthropic giving. Um, and typically middle-class households are more likely to be, to be white, you know, yeah. much less diverse there. And we often speak to those values. We speak to those, those aspirations. And it's not to say that there's, that's, that's an issue, but when we cut out certain voices that aren't at the table, when we're making strategic decisions, then we end up being responsive to just certain groups of people. And so we have to do a better job across the board of making sure that diverse communities are at the table. They're at the center of our conversations. We're in conversation with them and not talking about them uh, and that we're responsive to the needs of folks on the ground and not just the needs um, of our donor base. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. But now United Ways made a big hire here recently, though, in, in the executive area. We did. So uh, we recently hired uh, Angela Williams, uh, who is our uh, CEO of United Way Worldwide, which is kind of a the hub organization for the network, even though all United Way is independent and are independent. And uh, she's the first black person in this role. She's the first woman in this role. Um, and so we're extremely excited about it. I've had a chance to meet her and have a conversation uh, with her. And I'm very excited about the direction that she wants to move, not only the organization, but also the network. We've had a lot of conversations internally about shifting culture in the network. And I think, you know, having someone with, uh, with her background, uh, in this role is going to add a whole new dynamic to what we do. And I'm just really excited about the direction we're going. 
Well, that's awesome, man. We will be certainly um, looking out for her and rooting for her and supporting her and all of those things. So that's that's exciting, and I'm I'm happy to to see that. We need more, but you know we'll 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 celebrate victories when we have them. Just to um, switch gears, we ask everyone who comes on to the parlay at all in all blue, what does it mean to to live well? Wow, I mean that's that's such a that's that's a big question, right? Um, you know, living well for me is, you know, being able to be there for the people I love, right? You know, my ability to, you know, I've got a four year old that you probably heard in the background. <laughs> I apologize hey, this, for that. this is this is pandemic world. Four year olds, <laughs> dogs, and everything are part of podcasts, conference calls, sales pitches, and everything. Keep going, but yes, yes. Yeah, it's great. No, but she's, you know, it's being able to be there for her and, and, and of course, my wife and, and our family, being able to be there for my community, you know, yeah. um, and, and you know, all the people and the institutions that I care about, but also, you know, being able to be there for myself when I need to be, you know, and, and understanding that when you do this work, self-care oh, is man. extremely important. You know, having those times where you can just, you know, get lost in your own thoughts, you know, those times when you can kind of sit down and, and decompress a little bit are extremely important. To me, being able to balance those things, being able to be present, being able to be the type of supportive person I want to be really is, is what it means for me um, to live well. Everything else will work itself out. Uh, but those really, to me, are just kind of the most important things. Yeah. Thank you for that. All right. Well, so so I appreciate that. And and, and being there for, for family and those you love, that's really important. And the self-care, I'm going to take take both of those and add them to my tool, but tool belt as well. So before we started, and you brought it up earlier, and it, it listened, is there is there beef? I mean, fam, you's in the, in the swag now. I mean, I, listen, and I have love for all black colleges. I'm wearing my support black college shirt. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm here for everybody, but what's, 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 what's going on? Everybody can't be number one. I mean, got to play your position. What's, what's, what's going on? You know, everybody can't be number one, but apparently there are a lot of folks that have a problem being number two. And it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You know, we do things a little different down there on the highest of seven hills. You know, we, uh, you know, now it's, 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 been, it's a lovely thing, you know, being in the SWAC with FAMU, uh, yeah. making that transition has been so good for us. It's been good for the SWAC. It's been good for HBCUs because, you know, there's a real friendly competition. One of the things I can say about having been to FAMU and then living in the Jackson area and having a good relationship with, with Jackson state um, is that it, there really is a, a family right now. And I think, you know, that's one of the things I'm so proud of about what's happened over the last couple of years with the conversations we've been having is yeah. that there's this renewed sense of community and family amongst HBCUs. And I thought we, we kind of lost that and kind of gotten away from it and kind of gotten uh, wrapped up in the competition and the competition is still great. I mean, the marching 100 is still the best band in the land. I don't know where, so, I don't know where the boom falls. I don't know where the human jukebox right. falls, you know, but right. the, the, you right. know, the, the yeah. Washington 100 is still where it's at. But I love the fact that we're getting so much outward support of HBCUs and we've got people who are putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah. And that financial support has always been a, a really difficult thing for us. And it looks, seems like we're starting to turn a corner on that. I'm extremely happy about the future, not just the family, but HBCUs across the board. And I couldn't be happier to be an alumni right now. Yeah, no, nah, no, nah, that's 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 right. And listen, Dr. Greg Carr from Howard, professor of Africana Studies there at Howard, says is that 
there's one HBCU with multiple campuses, right? And, you know, he's a Tennessee State undergrad. And so he, you know, he's from sort of the SWAC area and, and, and what have you. So I'm sure he would agree with you that FAMU is the number one band in Florida and, and perhaps Tennessee State's the aristocrats number one band in Tennessee and Jackson State Sonic Boom is the number one overall. But you, we, 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 listen, but you are our guest, and if you say that FAMU is the number one band in the land, we'll we'll just let it go for now, and then we'll we'll see how that stands up uh, over time because we'll have um, at the parlay in all blue. We do aim to bring in thought leadership from the HBCUs, which I think is oftentimes missing in public and national conversation. So, you know, we appreciate that. One more question, though. So you said you're from Columbia, South Carolina. And from a food perspective, everything that I hear, and and from my experience, if you go to, if people think about food in South Carolina, they're going to think about Charleston or there on the Sea Islands. Are people getting that right, or is there something good to eat in Columbia, or what? 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 what what's going on? What, what do we need to know? All right, I'm gonna tell you this: if okay. you want some good seafood, uh huh, Charleston coast, those islands out there, yeah, you, you can't beat it. Like the yeah, seafood right. there is incredible. It's 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 top notch, right? You right. Want some good barbecue. Okay. You know, you want some good soul food. You know, okay. come 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 on down to Columbia. All we, right. you know, we got some spots. I'm, I'm from Green. I'm from Greenview, man. We we know where to eat. We know where all, all right. the spots are. So if you ever need some some advice, if you ever go that way, just holler at your boy. I'll tell you where to go get some good food. All right, you got I'm, it. I'm gonna do that. I'm and gonna mustard. Leave. Mustard is how you make barbecue sauce. Mustard. You know, I, I have to tell you, the first time that I saw mustard on barbecue sauce, I didn't know what was going on. But I will say this: I will yield. It ain't bad. It ain't bad. It, it ain't bad. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I, I will say it took me visually some getting used to, but it ain't bad. Well, listen, Dr. Ira Murray, we really appreciate you coming on to the show and breaking down Alice with us. And I took away something and I'm going to just say this is going to be the title of the episode. We need an environment that respects work. I, I thought that was a really powerful of, of many powerful statements that you that you made. We appreciate you appreciate you and, and thank you for uh, joining us on the Parlay in All Blue. For everybody else, stay tuned and hear some announcements afterwards. Thanks again, Dr. Murray. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher, wherever you receive your podcast. You can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite, follow us, or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Market G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.